Welcome to the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast, featuring the original hockey insider, Bob McKenzie. Hey, that's me, answering your questions on hockey or just about anything else, within reason, of course. If you have a question you would like answered, email me at bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca. And we'll try to get it on the Bobcast. We were a blood of wicked proportions, an accidental company. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Season 3, Episode Number 4 of the At TSN Hockey Bobcast. This one for Friday, November 9th, 2018. Guess we should call this the Hockey Hall of Fame edition of the Bobcast, since the induction ceremonies do go on Monday night. And, and what a Hall of Fame class it is. So congratulations to the two Martys, Berdour and San Louis, as well as Russian great Alexander Yakushev. Those are the three men honored in the player category. Also, big congratulations to the superstar women's player, Jaina Hefford, who's been honored also in the player category, as well as the two great builders, Willie O'Ree, who's headed up the National Hockey League diversity program for a while now, um, after, of course, breaking the first man to break the color barrier, playing for the Boston Bruins back in the 1950s. And, of course, NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman um, as a, going in as a builder. So congrats to all involved. It should be a great Hall of Fame weekend, and it, it actually kicks off tonight. Uh, the New Jersey Devils in Toronto for the uh, quote-unquote Hall of Fame game, and that happens to be a, a TSN, uh, a Leafs on TSN hockey regional game. So the minute I finish taping this episode of the Bobcast, I'm off to Scotiabank Arena for tonight's game. This would also most definitely be the Remembrance Day edition of the Bobcast. Sunday, of course, is Remembrance Day. So be sure to take a moment at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month to reflect on the great sacrifice of so many. And um, I think we've got a, a special moment from the TSN archives um, to honor this most solemn occasion. So be sure to stick around for the whole Bobcast to hear that, that we're going to finish things off on the Bobcast with something for Remembrance Day. I think you'll like it a lot. I sure hope you do anyway. Well, now, this was quite a week in the National Hockey League. I mean, for news people, uh, there was no shortage of material to deal with, which made it a fun week. Uh, uh, always lots to talk about. We had the Uber Sends fiasco, um, and it was something of that on, on every front. Um, Joel Quinville being fired by the Chicago Blackhawks. And um, I think there were probably at least a trio of what I would say were really interesting and debatable calls or non-calls. Um, and, and as I'm sitting here taping the, uh, the Bobcast, I see that Thomas Blacanitz and the Montreal Canadiens have parted ways. So, uh, as I said, no shortage of news this week. So what exactly did we learn this week on the news front? Well, I can tell you that, that I learned once again what I've already known about myself for a really long time. And that is what I've always thought is one of my greatest strengths is also my, my greatest weakness. And I, I guess you could say it around the other way around too. My greatest weakness is my greatest strength, whatever. The point I'm making is one that I've mentioned before. And I've always said that in, in this job, in, in my job in the media, that puts such a premium on voicing really strong and forceful opinions my greatest failing seems to have been that I've had a total, I guess you'd call it, total inability to see things as purely black and white. Um, 
I don't know why, but almost everything to me ends up being shades of gray. And, and I'll be honest, at times it annoys me to no end that I can't just say this is right or that is wrong. And, and I'm always seems to be constantly waging this internal battle with myself um, to see things and, and oftentimes rationalize things from both sides. And quite frankly, at times it's exhausting. Um, but I'm afraid that's just how I'm wired. And, and there are obviously some exceptions, of course. For example, let's talk about the, the whole situation in Ottawa with the Uber driver. Now, the Uber driver who not only videotaped the Ottawa Senators criticizing, mocking, having a laugh at assistant coach Marty Raymond's expense, but then sent it to the Ottawa media in an effort to embarrass the players, um, presumably because the driver didn't get a good tip or a good rating or whatever. Well, in my mind, that guy is an unadulterated dirtbag. And, and I think if you watch the video to the very end that was posted um, by the Ottawa Citizen and Post Media. Um, and, and keep in mind, what we saw of the video was exactly what the driver wanted us to see. He controlled what went out into the public domain, um, the, the editing of it. Um, and, and if you watch the video right to the very end, the last five or ten seconds, after the Senators players had left the vehicle, and he gets back in and he starts to drive away. You see him look down, maybe to his phone or to a screen in his car. And he takes note of something. And he says, F*** you. He was angry. And he wanted us to see that. And I think we can only presume that the driver either didn't get tipped, or the tip was in his mind insufficient. Or maybe he got a bad Uber rating, whatever. But that sure looked like that was his motivation for distributing the video and looking for payback of sorts. And, and for me, that's, that's an incredibly small person. That is the very definition of a douche. So no gray area for me there. But, but then came the debate that followed, and it was largely polarized by the senator's organization and post media, the, the news organization that opted to post the video and write about it. Um, the, the Sens asked them after the fact to take it down. And they refused. And, and that started to create a debate and, and raise questions uh, about the legality of it, though that's a really complex quagmire. Lots of people have written about the legalities of, of this whole thing, and it's really, really complex. Now, ethically, though, I think it's a much more interesting discussion because I think ethically you can boil it down a little clearer. And, and all I can tell you is that if that driver had contacted me and gave me the video, I would not have posted it. And I would not have written about it. Now, regardless of the various laws in Arizona where it occurred or in Ontario, I just don't like the ethics of it. So, you know, surreptitiously recording a conversation and then releasing it publicly to, to what humiliate and embarrass people because if they, you, you think they shortchanged you in some way. I wouldn't want any part of that. Plus, honestly, I didn't think what the player said was that big a deal. I mean, in in my universe, it's not unusual for hockey players to trash their coaches, and it's not unusual for coaches to trash their players, and especially when it's in the context of, of griping and letting off steam and doing so when you think you're in a safe space with your buddies. Um, that, to me, is about as old as the game itself, no big deal in my mind. And and since, you know, I'm 
controlling me. I get to pretty much call my own shots on what I do or I don't do vis-a-vis my job. That's how I would have handled it. So I guess there's an element of, well, it's pretty black and white um, from my perspective. But but then we get to the larger issue of whether Post Media should have or should have not posted the video and written about it. And one might presume that, given my opinion on what I, I would have done that I just stated, that I'd be critical of Post Media for going ahead with it. And I don't think that's necessarily true either. Uh, like I said, I'm an individual. I mostly have free reign to act as I see fit. But but I can absolutely see where a news organization, not a single individual, would see it differently. Now, the senators and Post Media disagree over whether the video was ever actually in the public domain before Post Media put it there. Now, that aside, I think Post Media has to be cognizant uh, of the precedent that it might be setting if it chose not to post the video. You know, if you're post media, you say, what if it were cabinet ministers in a car trashing the prime minister over, say, what the, the new free, free trade deal that's replacing NAFTA? Now, <laughs> don't get me wrong. I'm not equating free trade um, or cabinet ministers submarining a prime minister and the SENS PK and the SENS players submarining assistant coach Marty Raymond. But but honestly, if the news organization believes that there is a public interest involved, I can most certainly see a news chain being less concerned about how the video was obtained or the circumstances of its recording. Now, I wouldn't do it myself. For me, Bob McKenzie, independent contractor. But I wouldn't allow my personal view on what's best for me to be the basis of criticizing a news organization's sensibilities for being different than mine. And so now, as I understand it, the Senators players are all pissed off at Post Media, which is fair enough, I guess. But they're showing their displeasure with Post Media by either not answering questions from those reporters who work for Post Media or responding to them in a monosyllabic fashion. Yes, no. (laughs) And you know what? I think that's really petty. I mean, some of the reporters, um, they're doing it to, they had absolutely zero to do with the decision to post the video. I mean, you know, that wasn't their call. And even if it was, I mean, they had no, as I said, some of these guys had no influence whatsoever over that decision by Post Media any more than I would have if I worked at Post Media in spite of my personal feelings. But, and here's me seeing both sides of an issue, those players aren't really obliged to be that cooperative or verbose with anyone they don't want to be. I may think it's a little silly and immature, but it's well within their rights to do what they're doing. So, hey, eventually this whole thing's going to blow over. It almost always does. Um, this too shall pass, as they like to say. Um, so moving on, you know, no sooner had, had the Uber sends brouhaha hit full tilt boogie and, and right away, our attention was diverted to the firing of, of Blackhawk coach Joel Quenville. And on a firing in our business, I can tell you this in the media, you're, you're expected most of the time to take a side. It was the right decision. It was the wrong decision. And Stan Bowman was wrong and Joel got screwed over. Or you could say Stan's right and it was Joel's time to go. So let, let me get this disclaimer out of the way really quickly here. I love Q. Joel is one of my favorite people in the game. And, and I've known him a long time. 
I admire him greatly as a coach, but I, I like him even better as a person. And the numbers don't lie. I mean, three Stanley Cups, all those regular season wins. I, I, I think it goes without saying say it anyways. He's one of the greatest coaches in the history of the game. And listen, we've all known for a, a really long time now that Joel and Hawks general manager Stan Bowman have not always been on the same page, that there's been friction there, and that at times it's been a really uneasy coexistence. So, you know, given all of that, when I think one of the first radio interviews I, I did after Joel was fired, I was asked, if, is this just a case of Stan Bowman finally seizing the opportunity to win this power struggle? And I said, no, not really. Um, because, listen, I, I, I'm not convinced that a coaching change now will necessarily make the Hawks any better, honestly. It, it doesn't look to me like the Chicago Blackhawk defense is that good. Um, and it could be that the Hawks just aren't that good. And ultimately, this Chicago roster, for better or for worse, and it is Stan Bowman's baby, make no mistake about that, he's responsible for it. Um, but as much as I love Joel as a coach and a human being, and even though I, I may not be that confident that Jeremy Colleton is going to be able to come in here and, and immediately do what Joel wasn't able to do, my goodness, I think every general manager has the right to fire a coach if they think that's in the team's best interest. And I think that Stan and Joel, um, whatever differences existed, they did manage to coexist successfully for quite a long time. So if, if Stan Bowman thinks it's time for a different voice to be heard, I don't have a huge issue with that. I, and I don't buy the reasoning that you've got to be on Team Joel or you have to be on Team Stan. Like I said, I can be skeptical that a coaching change is, is going to lift the Hawks in the short term. Um, but I can see the next guy who's on the firing line if the Hawks' fortunes don't improve. And that, of course, is Stan. I can see why he'd want to push that button and give it a shot and, and see if it's going to make a difference. So we'll see how things play out for the Hawks with Jeremy Colleton behind the bench. Uh, we'll see how things play out for Q. Um, I think he's pretty patient in terms of getting back into the game. I, I'd never say never because if you get the right team at the right time with the right people involved, I suppose it's possible he could come back sometime before the end of this season. But I, I really get the sense and, and probably think that the best move for Joel, not that he needs any free advice from me, um, the best move for him would be to get to the off season. And I think, you know, I think the NHL world will be his oyster. My goodness. Imagine if some of the teams that are cup contenders, one of them, one or two of them crap out in the first round of the playoffs. How attractive is a guy like Joel Quinville going to be to a team that's right on the cusp of winning the Stanley Cup. So um, it'll be a fascinating thing to uh, to see how all that plays out. Um, there were a number of calls this week on the ice and otherwise um, where I was uh, beating myself up to reach a conclusion on what's right and what's wrong, uh, keeping going here with the theme of, uh, of never seeing things black and white. How about Milan Lucic on Matthew Joseph? Um, if you saw the Tampa Bay uh, Edmonton game the other night, you, you saw the, the rookie Matthew Joseph um, hit Chris Russell into the boards from behind and uh, Lucic didn't like it very much and hopped onto the ice and basically hunted, followed Joseph all over the ice, hunted him down and uh, 
and and then laid him out with a body check, even though he didn't have the puck, and then kind of jumped on top of him and gave him a couple of shots to the head. Um, and when I saw it, I thought to myself, hmm, I wonder if there'll be a hearing on that. Because when I looked at it, I said to myself, honestly, I don't think that's suspension worthy. Um, but there was a little something discomforting about it where I, I thought, you know what, I'm not sure the league could let that one slide because this whole idea of not being happy with a player on the other team, following and stalking him around the ice, hitting him when he doesn't have the puck, jumping on top of him and giving him a shot to the head. Um, and, and yet, and, and it feels funny saying this, I didn't really mind that Lucic did that. There was, you know, there was an old school element to it that I at least understand. Um, I guess I can say messages still sometimes need to be sent on occasion. Here was a young player who who had a, a questionable hit on Chris Russell and Lucic, being the veteran guy that he is, who obviously plays the game that way, um, wanted to go out and send a message to Joseph. Hey, that's not cool. Don't hit a guy like that. And, and in the old school axiom of the game, the threat of a guy like Milan Lucic beating up a guy like... Matthew Joseph, who's not a fighter per se, um, that's supposed to be a behavior-altering move that keeps more peace in the game than it does upset things. And yet I also understand a lot of people were immediately uncomfortable with the optics. And, you know, there were some people said, it's Bertuzzi-like. Listen, it's not Bertuzzi. It wasn't Todd Bertuzzi going after Steve Moore. Not even close. Um, but the game has changed. And... and you know, I get that the league and other people did not like the optics of a big guy like Lucic stalking a guy like a rookie like Matthew Joseph around the ice and doing what he did. So I thought the fine was the appropriate um, decision in this case. But as I said, um, sometimes messages need to be sent, but I'm, I'm not sure there's a way you can send messages anymore in the game. Um, so anyways, I, I don't presume to have all the answers on that one, but I found that one an interesting discussion point. The other one, and, and I, I rarely do this anymore, but I, I voiced an opinion on a hit on Twitter while the game was going on in real time. And uh, for those of you that uh, might not follow me on Twitter, at TSN Bob McKenzie, um, uh, it was the, the, the hit involving Evgeny Malkin and T.J. Oshie on Wednesday night. So if you didn't see the play, um, quick replay of it. Malkin's got the puck on the power play, comes across the blue line, uh, dishes the puck off to his left. Coming from his right is T.J. Oshie, and uh, Oshie's penalty killing. Now, Malkin braces himself for a hit, but puts his shoulder right into the face and head, of T.J. Oshie, who goes down pretty hard. And as soon as I saw the play, it's funny how everybody sees things differently, um, see the same play differently. As soon as I saw it, the first thing I thought of was T.J. Oshie had no intention of hitting Evgeny Malkin on that play. I thought Oshie, penalty killing forward, was chasing after the puck, and Malkin had dished it off. So my immediate reaction on Twitter was, Oshie not eligible to be hit, uh, clear and direct hit to the head. Um, I was quite fine with the fact that the referees on the play called a match penalty for a hit to the head. And I thought it was the correct call. 
Malkin was upset. Mike Sullivan and the Pittsburgh Penguins were upset. And funny enough, I would say most of the people reaction, a lot of the reaction on Twitter um, was in favor of, of Malkin being outraged by it. And that they were saying Malkin was just bracing himself for a hit. What's he supposed to do in that situation? He wasn't even looking at Oshie. It was just bad luck. And, and Malkin's taller than Oshie. And there you go. That, that's the way it goes. I mean, as I said, I I don't usually speak out on Twitter in real time because over the years I've learned it's a, <laughs> it's a fool's game to do that. But um, I did that time, and 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 I guess I, I guess I wasn't surprised that NHL player safety decided to see it the way a lot of people did. That is, that Malkin was just bracing himself for a hit, and that Oshie's oh, a big guy, and Oshie oh, blows people up. Let's be honest; he's a physical player, and and he's a threat. Um, but the whole time I watched that replay, all I could think about was this guy's killing a penalty and he never even looked to me like he was trying to lay a hit on Evgeny Malkin and that that was just Malkin interfering with a guy who was trying to get to the to the guy who now had the puck. In any case, um, went back and forth on that one. I thought that maybe if he'd been suspended for a game, it wouldn't have bothered me because I think these hits to the head, we've got to be more vigilant on them. But I also understand why so many people saw it the other way. So, again, one of these gray areas. The third play that I beat up seven ways to Sunday uh, actually occurred last night, Thursday night, in the National Hockey League. That was the Ottawa-Vegas game uh, with the goaltender interference, or not goalie interference, I guess, of William Carrier and um, and Craig Anderson. And I, I wasn't actually watching the game at the time that it occurred. I was flipping back and forth between the uh, the Ottawa-Vegas game and the Montreal-Buffalo game. And I was watching Montreal-Buffalo when, uh, when the incident occurred. But I quickly noted on Twitter that we had a red alert controversy on goalie interference challenge. So I immediately switched over to the Ottawa game and uh, saw some replays of the uh, of the play if you, if you didn't see it again I'll try my best to to describe it but um Anderson was coming out of the crease to challenge the shooter William Carrier was set up in front of the net outside the crease um and they got embroiled and tangled and uh a shot was taken and the the rebound uh or the the deflection of it ended up on the stick of a Vegas player at the side of the net and with Carrier basically on top of Anderson, um, the player shot it into the mostly empty net. Anderson was livid, and so was everybody else on Twitter, because by the time I got to uh, got to the game, um, the ruling had been made that no goalie interference on the play. And if <laughs> you saw the look on Guy Boucher's face, I mean, everything that's happened in Ottawa this season. Um, but Guy's got the most expressive face of any coach in the game. And this stunned look of, I can't believe you didn't call goalie interference on that. And on Twitter, as, as I said, man, it was it was outrage. This is outrageous. This is a terrible call by the National Hockey League, hockey ops and uh in the war room in Toronto and, and the referees involved. And so I started watching the replay and, you know, I watched Anderson go out and he initiated contact with Carrier and 
Then when the shot was taken, Anderson reflexively went down, kicked the pads out. And when he kicked his pads out, he hit Carrier in the, in the skate. And at that point, and I do think there's an element of Carrier was maybe falling, you know, went down a little too easily. And, and maybe that's where you could make a case that, you know, he didn't, uh, he didn't try to stay on his feet enough and that it was, it wasn't re- he was looking for the easy opportunity to, to accidentally on purpose interfere with, with Anderson. But I don't know. I, I was all braced for this overwhelming goalie interference that, that was miscalled by the league. And I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, what's Kerry supposed to do? He's just standing there minding his own business in front of the net when Anderson comes out and makes contact with him. Um, they share the ice. It wasn't even close to being in the blue paint. And as I said, you know, maybe Carrier um, fell a little too easily. And and I and I I get that the Sens are upset about it, and a lot of people are upset about it. But I didn't think it was this black and white, um, you know. And, and and if it was black and white, it was a lot more for the way the ruling actually went than the way that it didn't go. So. Um, Anyway, it's uh, it's been quite a week between the uh, the Uber thing, uh, Joel Quenville getting fired, these various calls that I, I go back and forth on, and as I said before, I I sometimes find it exhausting, being me, um, constantly fighting with myself, seeing one side, seeing the other, taking bits of this argument, bits and pieces of that argument, and I always manage to come up with a convoluted mass of gray that's. Uh, generally frowned upon in this business. And in my next life, I, I hope I come back as a really forceful black and white guy. This is right. That is wrong. But until then, I guess I'll just lead my tortured existence. Uh, before we get to this week's Bobcast questions, and we've got lots of really good ones, uh, I would like to welcome back Untucket as our sponsor and advertiser on this episode of the Bobcast. And on this particular issue, it is black and white. Untucket is great. Uh, you can get a black shirt, you can get a white shirt, you can get every color in between, patterns, prints, stripes, you name it. Um, and let's be honest, um, the tuck is no good. Um, and if you heard uh, our last episode where we welcomed Untucket as an advertiser, um, I came up with a nice little limerick that I thought was good. So in the spirit of that, and we're probably going to run out of this real soon, um, I, I, I've got another one. So here we go. There once was a man from Pawtucket who loved his Red Sox and once lived in Nantucket. He tucked in his shirt and then he kicked the bucket. Silly man should have been wearing an untucket. So there you go. Um, listen, uh, it's never a good look when you untuck that long, bulky dress shirt. And that's why Untucket makes shirts specifically designed to be worn untucked. A casual shirt that's not too long, not too short. Untucket shirts are a go-to for any occasion, from casual to dressy. They have more than 50 sizing options. Every guy, even me, can find the perfect shirt. So go to Untucket.com and check out all the new fall arrivals. Use the promo code BOBCAST, that's B-O-B-C-A-S-T, for 20% off your purchase. And be sure to visit Untucket at their brand new, their first Canadian retail store in Sherway Gardens in Etobicoke. Or you can shop online anywhere. 
Uh, stop hiding your shirt with your pants and your pants with your shirt. Untuckit.com and use that promo code BOBCAST, B-O-B-C-A-S-T, get 20% off. Alrighty then, let's get to some questions. Lots of good ones here. The first one comes from Chris from Canada. Wait a second. Chris from Canada. Who the hell put this question in here? Uh, Chris from Canada, if you uh, didn't know it, uh, is a gentleman who uh, does the show notes for the Bobcast. So when you see uh, TSN Hockey tweet out the link to the Bobcast, um, there's time codes and uh, show notes. And um, anyways, Chris from Canada writes the show notes, and now he's expecting to get his question answered. And fine, fair enough, Chris from Canada, dear Bob, can you explain to me why when a team has has a back-to-back, the backup goalie always, or almost always, plays the second of the two games. If you have two games in two days, wouldn't it make more sense to have the better goalie play the better team? That from Chris from Canada. Well, how appropriate is this? Because we have a real live example of that happening right now. Um, Toronto Maple Leafs announced today that Mike that uh, Mike Babcock announced that uh, Freddie Anderson, the Leafs' number one goaltender, will be playing tonight's game at Scotiabank Arena versus the New Jersey Devils. And that the Leafs, after the game, are going to jet off to Boston for the uh, game Saturday night against the Boston Bruins. And that presumably will be Garrett Sparks' game. Um, So there you have it. Division rival on the second game. I think Chris from Canada's point would be uh, why wouldn't you put Freddie Anderson up against the Boston Bruins and uh, and play Sparks against the New Jersey Devils on home ice? Good question. Uh, since I didn't really know 100% for sure, I asked a number of NHL coaches, past and present, their thinking on that. And what it really boils down to is, generally speaking, the second game of a back-to-back usually involves the team traveling. So the first game of the back-to-back is usually a home game. And then you go on the road and you play the second game. And therefore, the uh, coaches think that you would rather have your number one goalie play rested and on home ice with a rested team in front of them. Chris, from Canada's point, quite rightly, I guess, would be, well, why not put the number one goalie in on the night when the team in front of you is tired because if your number one goalie is that good, he could steal the game for you. And that a a well-rested team will do a better job of protecting the backup goaltender in the first game. And the simple answer, Chris from Canada, is that the, the NHL coaches see it otherwise and they would rather play their number one goalie on home ice with a rested team in front of them and throw the backup goalie to the vagaries of travel and uh, being on the road for the second game. So there you go. And now I'm going to expect some smart-ass commentary on the show notes. Great question from Chris from Canada. Uh, There we go. All right, next up, uh, this one from Andrew. And this is a good one. Um, Andrew's from Nova Scotia, by the way, because he says, Hi, Bob, from Nova Scotia. Could we please dissect the pros and cons of allowing a team be given the choice to decline a penalty shot in favor of a two-minute power play? What are your thoughts? Do you like the one-and-done penalty shot 
or a full two minutes to create multiple chances to score, change momentum, etc. I'm in favor of hashtag decline the penalty shot option, but I guess it depends on the shooter versus the power play productivity. Regardless, let us discuss. Thanks from Andrew McIntosh. Well, Andrew, um, again, I thought it was a great question. And like on the last episode of the Bobcast where somebody had a great question about the uh, the, the, the draft uh, that saw Hampus Lindholm, Morgan Riley, and Jacob Truba all selected, um, I decided to do another Bobcast flash poll. Um, it's getting to be a regular thing here. This is kind of cool. So anyways, I asked a number of NHL coaches. How, how many? Uh, let's see what we've got here. Wait a second. One, two, three, four, five, six. Looks like I got seven responses so far. I think I put out about ten. So there's still a few outstanding. Um, and the vast majority of them, right now it looks like five of the seven, said they would take the penalty shot um, and the two who said that they would possibly decline the penalty shot did it only conditionally um, so let's actually read the text back I won't say who these are from anonymity is uh, the, the hallmark of my flash polls um, this coach in the National Hockey League said it all depends on who is taking the penalty shot for me it is that specialized a skill. If I can choose my shooter, I will take the penalty shot over the power play every time. Um, but, uh, this coach goes on to say, a good penalty shot shooter is 30 to 40%. A good power play is 25%. A poor penalty shot shooter is 10% or lower. A poor power play is 15%. The differential between a good and poor penalty shot shooter is much bigger than the differential between a good and poor power play. So what this coach is saying is it depends entirely on who's taking the penalty shot. And since more often than not, you don't get to pick who takes the penalty shot because most penalty shots are on the basis of um, who got fouled on a breakaway or what have you. Um, that uh, that's that one. So now let me go to the second coach. Hold on one second here. Let me find it on my phone. And he said the exact same thing. Depend on depends entirely on the shooter and your power play. Some guys are 30 to 40 percent uh, on penalty shots, and some are awful. If I had one of my top penalty shot guys, then I would take the penalty shot. Now, more interesting for me was the fact that the guys who automatically would take the penalty shot and their rationale for it. So one coach actually phoned me early this morning and said, you must take the penalty shot. If you don't take the penalty shot, the player who would be taking the penalty shot would treat it as a vote of no confidence and you would be eroding trust with that player and maybe all the players on your team if you chose the power play over the penalty shot shooter. And another coach said exactly the same thing. Penalty shot. If you decline the penalty shot, what are you telling that specific player? It just shows a lack of confidence in the player. So two coaches came up with exactly the same thing. Uh, one more. Uh, for a coach saying he would take the penalty shot over the power play. It would be all math. 
the average penalty shot shooter is successful a third of the time. Only Washington is above that on their power play. I would take the shot if we were behind in the game and save the two minutes of five on five. If we were leading, I would take the power play to give us a chance to score. And if we don't score, we would be burning time off the clock. Um, One more. Let me see here. Hold on. Um, This doesn't give it away because there are many ex-college coaches in the NHL, so I'm not uh, betraying anonymity here. Um, But this particular coach says, we had this rule in college. Um, Generally speaking, college coaches always take the penalty shot outside of factors such as a really poor shooter or uh, a minute and a half left in the game. Uh, I would always take the penalty shot. So there you go. A good question from Andrew McIntosh on that and just another excuse for the vaunted Bobcast flash poll. Next question comes from Ben Cousins. Hi, Bob. Big fan of the podcast and a fellow Bell Media employee. I was wondering what happens when a player is traded to another team that has played fewer games than the team he came from. This player would then play 83 or 84 games in the season. But how does that impact the player's contract? Are they paid more because they played more games? How would this impact the salary cap? Thanks that from Ben Cousins. Well, Ben, you're right. Sometimes if you go through NHL scoring at the end of the regular season, you can see that there is a player who's played uh, 83 or 84 games. And um, it doesn't really impact anything. Um because players are not paid by the game in the National Hockey League. They're paid by the day. Um, There's 186 days in the NHL regular season, and um, they get paid based on how many days they are in service. And that's why when a player gets suspended, not a repeat offender, that's a little different, I'll explain that in a second, but when there's a suspension in the National Hockey League, If a player gets a two-game suspension in the NHL, he doesn't lose two games pay. He loses two days pay. So he loses two over 186, unless he's an official repeat offender, in which case he loses two over 82 for the more advanced repeat offender um, penalty premium, if you want to call it that, on lost salary. But anyways, uh, they get paid by the day, not the game. So it doesn't matter how many games they play in the 186 days, that's their salary. Uh, Next up comes from uh, DW in Dryden, Ontario. Love the Bobcast, but let's get right to it. When Oster Sundquist cuts across the middle with the puck, was there any legal way Tom Wilson could have hit him? Would it have been legal for Wilson to deliver an old-time hip check, or would this also be intent to injure and demand a suspension? Then this begs the question, What if Sundquist would have faked the pass, including head fake, and Wilson passes on the hit only to have Sundquist shoot and score? I fully understand the lethality of concussions and headshots, but is there no responsibility for a player not to put themselves in a high-risk scenario or does skating through the middle with your head down, turned, make you unhittable? Thanks. I always look forward to listening every other week. That from DW in Dryden, Ontario. First quick Tom Wilson update. Um, he had his in his hearing with the independent arbitrator a week ago Wednesday. I think it was October 26th. Uh, is that right? 
anyways, or 24th, whatever. Anyways, it was a week ago Wednesday that he had his um, uh, hearing with the neutral arbitrator. And um, we should have an answer, I would think, sometime next week on whether or not that's going to be diminished at all in, uh, on appeal. Um, so now back to your question. Yeah, you know what? I would only say this. There's probably some legal way for Tom Wilson to do it. He could have went butt first into his midsection, and that would have greatly diminished the, um, uh, the chances of hitting him in the head. Um, you couldn't go low on a submarine because when it's the north-south play like that, um, when one player's skating one way and the other player's coming into you, um, the National Hockey League frowns on going submarine style at two guys that are on a collision course because the player has no, uh, the, the, the one player has no ability to prepare for the hit. Some would say if you're in the motion of shooting, you don't have a, an ability to prepare for the hit. Nevertheless, the onus because of head trauma and because we've changed the way that things go and with Rule 48 and such with hits to the head, the ultimate onus is on the player um, who's doing the hitting to find a way not to hit the other player in the head. So that if that means pulling out of the head entirely, then maybe that's what it means. But there's also, uh, I think, pretty good latitude on the part of the National Hockey League to deliver a full body-on-body hit. And if there's incidental head contact, so be it. Those are the rules. Um, But you've got to make sure that you go body-on-body. And in the eyes of the National Hockey League, Tom Wilson didn't do that. Next question comes from Owen Taylor in Newcastle, Ontario. Hi, Bob. Big fan of the show. So first, Neil Yakupov was a failure in Edmonton. Now, Jesse Puglia-Yarvi seems to have worn out his welcome. Is this a failure of the Oilers scouting staff or a failure of the development program? P.S. Yarmo Kekalainen in Columbus passed on his countryman, Jesse. Did he know something or was he just drafting for position? Looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there from Owen's question. Um, okay, uh, first question. Hmm. Yeah, let's let's deal with the Columbus aspect of it first. Uh, Owen correctly points out that Yarmo Kekalainen um, could have drafted uh, Jesse Pugliarvi third overall in that draft, but chose instead to take Pierre-Luc Dubois. And one of the rationales at the time Columbus gave for drafting Pierre-Luc Dubois over uh, Pugliarvi was that Pugliarvi is a pure winger. Dubois was a guy that they envisioned could play center. And it turned out quite rightly that Pierre-Luc Dubois has been a great center uh, for the Columbus Blue Jackets. And in any case, based on the play of Dubois so far in the NHL and the inability of Pugliarvi to fully establish himself as an NHL player, um, good call by the Columbus Blue Jackets. And, and maybe uh, Jarmo Kekalainen, with his Finnish contacts, um, did know and believe that, uh, that he was maybe a flawed player. That said, I'm not prepared just yet to write Jesse Pugliarvi off as a National Hockey League player. And I realize his body of work so far has not been impressive. And this uh, situation in Edmonton uh, looks like it's uh, it may be coming to a head. 
I, I think over his first two years um, in his entry-level contract, Pugliarvi has made some strides, and there has been obviously time in the American Hockey League there. But I think last year, mostly in the NHL, he started to make some strides with the Oilers, and I think they started to see some progress from him. But right off the hop this year, it's been he had a great preseason, um, but he hasn't been able to uh, to nail down a regular spot in the lineup. And when he does play, it's often on the third or in the most recent game, the fourth line. There's been much speculation that he's on the verge of being sent to the American Hockey League um, to try and get his confidence back. Um, I think Pugliarvi's getting frustrated. I think the Oilers are getting frustrated. And I think the situation quite likely, sooner rather than later, may be coming to a head. And um, I think it's one of the, and I talked about this on Edmonton Radio this morning. The the Oilers would say, listen, Yessi, play better and you'll get more ice time. And Pugliarvi would probably counter that by saying, hey, show some confidence in me and play me more minutes and more quality minutes and I'll respond. And it's one of those catch-22s that uh, goes back and forth. In any case, if if the Oilers think that sending Pugliarvi to the minors is best for his development, um, you know, that's their call. And he's contractually obliged to report to the minors. But I also think that if he is assigned to the minors on anything other than a short-term temporary basis, I could see the player or the agent maybe balking a little bit and saying, hey, listen, it's not working out here. You're not happy with me. I'm not happy with you. Let's uh, let's do what's best for everybody and move on. Now, I don't believe that trade request or has, has been positioned at all um, to this point in time. But I guess what I'm saying is if Pugliarvi is destined to go back to Bakersfield, I wouldn't be surprised if something along those lines were to transpire. So certainly a situation to uh, to keep an eye on. Next question comes from William H. Hey, Bob, how do you explain the Habs start to the season? All I heard in the offseason was people saying Montreal will be terrible this year. Max Domi only scores empty net goals and that we traded our only good player in Pacioretty. Well, as of today, November 6th, Montreal's tied with Boston and Toronto for second in the Atlantic. Domi scored his eighth last night, one short of his total last year. Uh, none of them empty net to my knowledge. And Tatar seemed to be a throw-in in the Pacioretty deal, already has 11 points versus Max Pacioretty's two. What's going on here, and is this sustainable? Thanks in advance, and keep up the great work. Well, obviously, things have advanced a little bit since then. Uh, Montreal did lose to Buffalo in overtime last night, but Domi was fantastic, some primary assists, some more last night. Uh, Tatar is continuing to score goals. Um, Pacioretty's uh, not being able to find the range uh, as consistently as he as consistently as he would like. And lo and behold, who's who's showing up in uh, Montreal this weekend for Saturday night's game? But Max Pacioretty and the Vegas Golden Knights. Um, what I would say is this: couple of things. I didn't. Th- I personally didn't think Montreal would necessarily be terrible this year. I said in the preseason preview, Bobcast preview of the the Canadians that I thought they would have a chance, a legit chance, to compete for a playoff spot. But I am surprised they've played as well as they have. I also uh, thought and said so in the preseason, and at the time of the Domi-Galchenyuk trade, 
that I thought Max Domi would really get juiced up playing in a hockey market like Montreal and that getting out of Arizona where he had back-to-back nine goal seasons and quite correctly, what, four or five empty net goals last year, I thought the change would be fantastic for him and that he could score uh, 20-plus goals. I didn't expect him to um, already eclipse or get his, his, his ninth goal already this early in the season. And uh, Montreal has been even better than I thought they would be. And I guess the kicker to this whole story, and it's highlighted because of the way the Canadians lost last night to the Buffalo Sabres in overtime, is I, if, if the Montreal Canadiens are going to be a playoff team or were going to be a playoff team and play as well as they've played, we all would have believed that the reason for it would be the outstanding netminding of Carey Price, and it's been anything but. Um, I think he was average at times, a little bit better than average to start the season. But in the last little while here, he's been way, way, way subpar, way below in his last four, five, six starts. He's, his safe percentage is way below 900. I think it's around 850 in the last four games or last four losses anyway. Um, so, yeah, Carey Price's game is nowhere where it needs to be. Montreal's game is way better than we thought it would be, and we never thought those two things could converge. Um, I'm going to stick with Montreal being a potential playoff team. I think they've got to do it longer than they've done it so far to establish themselves as as a legit threat to Tampa or Boston or Toronto in the division, although the Bruins are very much on hard times right now with all sorts of injury problems and uh, and what have you. So, um, yeah, I'm happy for the folks in Montreal because last year was a disaster. Um, but long-term, they're going to need to get uh, Kerry's game straightened around. Next question comes from the Reverend Tyler Moore. Hello, Bob. Love the podcast. Always incredibly well done. I've been wondering for a while now with guys like Tyler Johnson, Yanni Gourd, Jonathan Marcheseau, Corey Conacher, and now potentially Alex Barre-Boulet, all becoming successful undrafted free agents in the league. How is it that these players slip through the cracks and are not among the hundreds of players taken in the draft, even in the later rounds? And how do so many of these guys end up being with the Tampa Bay Lightning? Well, the short answer to your question, Reverend Moore, is that... um, Size matters or size doesn't matter. Take your pick. And in the case of all these guys, they're they're all a little smaller than the average NHL player. But if we've learned anything in the last one, two, three, four years, especially, is that size doesn't matter in the National Hockey League. And whether you're talking about a Johnny Goodrow or any of the players that you mentioned. Um, and, And it's funny because, I mean... Yanni Gord and, and Jonathan Marcheseau, um, they they really kind of took off once they got into pro. They had, you know, they had good junior careers, but um, it was once they got to pro that they really made their developments. Um, and, uh, you know, Johnson's the outlier there um, because he, he had a junior career that was off the charts. He put up astronomical numbers and dominated junior hockey and and yet still didn't get um the recognition via the draft um but he was also at the time that he played junior hockey 
That was right at the tail end of the land of the giant philosophy that most teams were embracing. And uh, so he was probably really critically um, set back by that size matters mentality. And he, he quickly uh, proved otherwise. Um, as far as the, um, the lightning ending up with these guys, the only thing I can tell you is that the, the directive that Steve Eiserman, now the former general manager, but still a consultant with the Tampa Bay lightning gives his scouting staff and, um, and what Al Murray has told the scouts all along has been, um, you know, we don't, don't worry about size. Size is not a concern. And the other thing they've done more so than a lot of franchises in the National Hockey League is that they're not afraid to draft Russians uh, or sign Russians. They, um, they, they just say, hey, just bring us the best hockey players. We don't care what size they are. We don't care what nationality they are. Bring us the best. And uh, so on volume... They've signed a lot of these free agents, and and obviously Marcheseau um, um, ended up uh, with another organization, um, and uh, we'll we'll see where it goes with Barre Boulet and uh, and what have you. But uh, yeah, uh, good question and uh, good theme on the younger guy on the smaller guys free agents going through Tampa. Next up in the question queue is from Michael Riley. Hey, Bob, love tuning into your podcast while driving, sitting in traffic in Delhi. I'm assuming that's Delhi, India, unless it's Delhi, Ontario, but I don't think there's that much traffic in Delhi. So anyways, uh, Michael's question. My question to you is, do you have any inside information on who the Avalanche would have picked if the Sens had decided to give up the pick uh, in last year's draft? Or would they, or would the Avalanche have chosen Brady Kachuk just like the Sens did, or maybe Philip Zadina, or possibly one of the defensemen available, Quinn Hughes, Adam Boquist, or Evan Bouchard? Love hearing your inside information as well as your opinion. Thanks for continuing a third season of the Bob Bobcast. Cheers from Michael. Well, Michael, what I think you can safely assume is that the Colorado Avalanche would have taken a forward after Rasmus Dahlin went number one to Buffalo. And Andrei Svechnikov went number two to Carolina. And Jesperi Kotkaniemi went number three to the Montreal Canadiens. There's no doubt in my mind Colorado was taking a forward at number four if they were picking. Um, and I believe uh, it would have either been Philip Zadina or Kachuk. And my suspicions, and they're only my suspicions, is that Colorado would have taken Zadina at number four, and of course, everybody knows he went number six to the Detroit Red Wings, and the uh, Arizona Coyotes took Barrett Hayton of the Sioux Greyhounds at number five. So it's funny, I love these draft questions, because let's presume for a moment that Ottawa uh, gave back Colorado its first-round pick last year, and let's assume for a moment that Colorado took Zadina at number four. What would Arizona have done at number five? Would they have gone with Brady Kachuk or would they have stayed the course with the center that they wanted in Barrett Hayton? And uh, that would have been interesting. So uh, who knows? All just guesswork, but uh, that's my guesswork, Michael. Anyways, a uh, little listener feedback, but it's actually a little more than a listener feedback. There's a question in here, too. Uh, comes from Tom Fernandez. Hey, Bob, I'm a fan of your work, and this is my first time writing to you. I hope you can reply, reply personally or on the Bobcast. 
I'm a 24-year-old from Argentina. I've been a hockey fan for about six or seven years now, mainly a Chicago Blackhawks fan, but I've learned to love most of the teams in the league. I don't know if I should say this, but I try to watch as many games as I can per day. I can see two or three games if the schedule is good to me. But the only way I can do so is through a community of people who stream the games. NHL Game Center is way too expensive here. In my country, a U.S. dollar is equal to 40 pesos. It's quite a lot. Even though this and through social media, I've gotten the opportunity to learn a lot about hockey, its culture, its stories, its players, and its characters, including yourself. I'm an aspiring journalist, and I'm studying TV and radio production here at a school in what I think would be the equivalent of a community college in Canada. Having worked on local radio stations and newspapers, mainly in the entertainment market, I've come to realize that I would love to move to Canada or the United States and try to make a living in the hockey world. I would like to think that the vision that came from way out of left field into the game could be interesting either to an NHL organization or any sports media outlet who would be willing to give me a shot. I wanted to know what's the market for people who would like to work with the sport and what's the market for Spanish-speaking immigrants who would like to get a chance to do so. I'm actually writing for a a Spain-based website who's the only Spanish-speaking site that covers hockey. Thanks in advance for reading. Thanks in advance for replying. And keep up the wonderful work. Thomas Fernandez in Argentina. Well, thanks, uh, Tom. Much appreciated. Uh, It's great to to have a fan of the Bobcast in Argentina. And thought a little bit about your your situation. Um, Well, first off, if there's anybody listening who has the need for a Spanish-speaking hockey fan who can do some writing or what have you, then um, I can probably get you hooked up with Tom Fernandez, just email me uh, bobcast at bellmedia.ca and we could make that happen. But my, my first thought is um, one of the advantages of Sunbelt expansion in the United States is that slowly but surely um, the game is, is becoming more uh, attuned to different cultures and the Latino culture in the United States um, because of the presence of teams in in Florida, the Panthers, um, in Dallas, the Stars, uh, the Coyotes in in Arizona, um, the three uh, sorry the two Southern California teams, Anaheim and Los Angeles, um, the, the somewhat Northern California team in terms of uh, the Sharks in San Jose. Um, there's beginning to be a, a bit more of, of a potential for Spanish-speaking audiences. So, Tom, what I would suggest to you would be to, to contact those teams, uh, contact uh, the Spanish-speaking media in and around those marketplaces and see if there might be some sort of opportunity for you to get a foot in the door um, to, to write or contribute in some way, shape, or form. So um, good luck to you. I I know it's probably an uphill climb on that front, but um, stay with it. And as I said, if there's anybody who's listening to the Bobcast who has any suggestions for how Tom Fernandez in Argentina could continue to make inroads, um, by all means, forward them to us and, and we'll get you guys hooked up. Okay, the final question for this episode of the Bobcast uh, goes to Jeff LeClaire, 
who says he's from the greater Toronto area via Nova Scotia, via, via Prince Edward Island. Hi, Bob. I recently read that former NHLer, broadcaster, and the original skills coach Howie Meeker just turned 95 years old. I didn't know him as a player, but it seemed every summer hockey school in the 1980s, including a VCR session to watch Mr. Meeker's skills tapes. Have you ever met Mr. Meeker, and would you possibly have a story or two about him? Love the pod and keep up the Movember support. Loyal listener, Jeff LeClaire. Well, this is perfect timing uh, here with Remembrance Day coming up on Sunday. So um, rather than prattle on about Howie Meeker, um, I'm going to quickly read a little bit of his bio from what's called the Canadian Encyclopedia. So everybody understands just what a national treasure Howie Meeker is. Howard William Howie Meeker, hockey broadcaster, player and coach, Born Kitchener, Ontario, November 4th, 1923. Widely known for his enthusiastic, effervescent, and oftentimes critical commentary on the CBC's Hockey Night in Canada. Meeker began playing hockey in the Ontario Junior B League in 1940. Speedy and pugnacious right winger, he won the Junior B Championship with the Stratford Kiss Canadians in 1942. Having joined the Army's Corps of Royal Canadian Engineers in 1943, he was wounded in 1944 when a live grenade exploded beneath his legs during training exercises in England. Upon returning to Canada, Meeker joined the Toronto Maple Leafs in 1946 and won the Calder Trophy as NHL top rookie in 1947. That season, he set rookie records for most goals scored in a season 27 and most goals scored in one game five. During the first five years he spent with the Maple Leafs, he won four Stanley Cups. Okay, and that that gives you the flavor of who he is, but I should also point out, it also says here in 1951, he joined the Progressive Conservative Party and won a by-election in his hometown riding of Waterloo South. At 27, he was the youngest member of Parliament, continued to sit in office for two years while still playing for the Maple Leafs. Uh, he coached in the American Hockey League. Uh, he coached the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, had fights with Con Smythe and his son Stafford and ended his association with the Leafs. I got involved in Saint in Newfoundland politics uh, in 1958, and then also got involved with the youth hockey program there. 18-year uh, stay in uh, in Newfoundland. Uh, so we got all that. Let's see. Uh, then he went on Hockey Night in Canada in 1968, and he was. A, you can't even begin to believe what a pioneer he was. Uh, back it up. He he would be the original guy to break down video and do it in a really highly critical way. You know, what was this bonehead thinking about here? It was an absolute treasure to listen to Howie Meeker on Saturday night. And he would, he, golly gee, Willikers, Jumpin' Jehoshaphat, Jiminy Cricket. Um, anyways, he was uh, with Hockey Night in Canada until 1990. And then in the 1990s, when I was uh, working at, really starting to blossom and do my work, a lot of my broadcast work at TSN in the early to mid-1990s. Uh, I had the joy of meeting Howie and working with Howie uh, at TSN. And um, so he asked for Howie Meeker stories. I'm going to give you one. Uh, myself and Gord Miller and Howie Meeker were assigned to cover the um, 
the Max Midget Tournament in Calgary. So we were getting ready to, to do the game. And uh, while the period was on, we were watching. And as we were watching, Howie was basically giving us a play-by-play of what he liked and didn't like about the way these 16-year-old kids were playing. The game was actually being played in the Saddle Dome. And we're in the broadcast booth. And Howie is just going to town on these 16-year-old kids. Look at that kid. He's brain dead. This is terrible. This is what's wrong with Canadian hockey. And, and Gordon and I are thinking, man, if Howie goes on in the intermission and, and blows up these 16-year-old kids and, and attacks Canadian hockey, which he, Howie was famous for doing. I mean, he did it a lot. Um, you know, they, they don't think the game properly and their skills are no good. And, and he had a lot of valid, really valid things that over time we figured out ourselves, but he was at the forefront, the pioneer of. But Gordon and I were like, man, if Howie goes on between periods and and doesn't tone it down just a little bit, this is going to be a, a, a national incident because <laughs> they're only 16-year-old kids. And uh, and so anyways, we, we told Howie that, yeah, listen, you can get your point across, but you don't want to really insult a 16-year-old kid and call him brain dead, um, I, I don't think. Uh, uh, anyways, uh, we were laughing at the time. And so we started the intermission and, and Howie was really good and, and he was doing really great. And and then about halfway through the clip, he kind of lapsed back into, what is this kid thinking? <laughs> and really went to town. And Gordon and I just looked at each other and said, hey, train left the station. Howie's awesome. And, uh, and nobody should be too offended because uh, he wasn't meaning it to be personal. He was just passionate, passionate about skillful hockey and the fact that Canadians weren't stressing it enough in their coaching and in their training and in all the development. Anyways, Howie Meeker is a national treasure. Um, and as Jeff correctly points out, he just celebrated his 95th birthday. And I know he's, I believe he's still living out on uh, Vancouver Island. Um, and, uh, and it's yeah, he's got a waterfront home in French Creek, and and actually I didn't realize this, but when I I, I googled to get any latest updates on how Howie in December of 2017, there's a great story by Cindy Harnett in the Victoria Times columnist talking about how Howie um, uh, had some amazing an amazing cutting edge heart procedure done um, that's extended his life. He was 94 at the time that he was dealing it, but he was diagnosed with aortic stenosis, a condition caused by normal wear and tear of the heart valves. And it causes the heart to work harder to pump blood due to calcium deposits in the valves. And um, it can really decrease your life expectancy and cause all sorts of chest pain and angina and labored breathing and all of that. Medication can help, but it doesn't reverse it. In any case, um, a cardiologist, the, the interventional cardiologist, Dr. Anthony Della Siega at the Royal Jubilee Hospital Cardiac Center in Victoria changed Howie Meeker's fate. They did a procedure called the transcatheter. Wait, hold on a second here. I should just say it's T-A-V-I. Transcatheter aortic valve implantation was the solution to Howie's problem. And this is a cutting edge technology that's, uh, that's done especially at this hospital 
in Victoria. So anyways, uh, long story short, belated happy 95th birthday to uh, our dear friend and national treasure, Howie Meeker. I always remember how he would tell stories, um, great stories, not just of his time in hockey, but his time uh, in World War II. And he, he, you've got to hear Howie explain the grenade blowing up between his legs and managing to turn a potentially life and death situation into a hilarious explanation for the obvious reasons of exactly where the grenade blew up. And uh, anyways, that was good. But it is uh, Remembrance Day on Sunday, and it is a very solemn occasion. And because Howie is a veteran, um, and because Howie knows um, how much the sacrifice that he and so many others made uh, means to all of us, in um, for Remembrance Day in 2011, um, TSN Hockey got Howie to um, read in Flanders Field the great uh, poem from uh, from uh, John McRae, who of course is the reason why we wear poppies at this time of year. So without further ado, and to close out the Bobcast, I just wanted to uh, run rerun Howie uh, reciting the great John McRae poem in Flanders Field. In Flanders fields, the poppies blow between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place. And in the sky, the larks, still bravely singing, fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you, from failing hands, we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields.
Okay, that's it for the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like to submit a question on hockey or just about anything else, email it to bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca, and we'll try to get it on the next Bobcast. Be sure to follow me on Twitter. That's at TSN Bob McKenzie. And for great hockey coverage all year round, follow the at TSN Hockey Twitter account and make tsn.ca your source for all things hockey, especially for the Tuesday and Thursday editions of Insider Trading with myself, Darren Dreger, and Pierre Lebrun. Thanks for tuning into the Bobcast. See you next time, and have a great weekend.